Think about the last time you received an injection. Might have been a vaccine, an IV fluid, or an antibiotic shot. How did the drug product look like? Most likely, a clear solution encompassed in a cool glass vial. The clearness of the solution is crucial here, as it ensures that no particles are present. However, these often life-saving treatments may contain the so-called sub-visible particles, those that cannot be seen by the human eye. Pharma manufacturers must ensure that drug products are free of both visible and sub-visible particles, as both may represent safety and efficacy concerns for patients. They might decrease the amount of the active ingredient, cause immune responses, or even block a vein and cause an emboli. But how can we get rid of something that cannot be seen? To answer this tedious question, I am joined today by a former colleague of mine, from the beginning of my career with Lonza, when I used to work in the forensic chemistry lab. Pascal Chaloux is Lonza's Associate Director of Particle Identification, and he will explain that. Every single vial that are on the market anywhere in the world have been inspected for particles. Today's episode has it all, comparing pharma manufacturing to the famous CSI, Crime Scene Investigation TV series, insect legs, and me failing a visual inspection test. Join us as we step into a forensic chemistry laboratory at Lonza's Drug Product Services in Basel, Switzerland, where the meticulous work of particle detectives ensures the safety, quality, and stability of drug products. I am Martina Hesteritsova, and this is A View On, a podcast brought to you by Lonza. Hi, Pascal. Thanks so much for joining me at the recording studio today. Thank you very much for inviting me for recording. Of course. Very happy to. It's one of my favorite topics, as you will hear soon, I guess. <laughs> but I simply have to begin by asking, how does your daily work compare to the work of the CSI forensic scientist? I think many people think of this if they think about forensic science, right? Of course, many people think of that. Um, let's say our work has differences, but also things that are very similar to what they present in the show. Uh, difference is we don't have dim light with super nice colors in the labs. This is one thing that we differ from them. Right. <laughs> one thing that um, we have similar is understanding what the things that we have in our hands are or what they correspond to. We try to identify people, we try to identify materials, and we always start from unknown. So this is really the challenge and this is what is making fun. Another small difference is we much less get on-site, we receive our sample, whereas they always go to pick up their samples. And wear nice sunglasses on the way, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> For you, I assume it's always lab goggles. For us, it is always lab goggles, um, except when we need to really do visual inspection and really look for a particle in a vial, for example, and there we need to not have disturbance in front of the eyes. Oh, so you do that without glasses on? Yes. Ah, interesting. Only your correction if you have corrections. Um, I am really curious also, how did you 
personally get into this field of research and development in the first place? Um, this is um, came to me through um, previous position where I was really working with spectroscopy and with imaging techniques. And uh, let's say that at that time, uh, particle identification, complaints, understanding, and such things were, let's say, a side thing for me. We even helped jewelry to check for pearls and things like this, but only um, as hobby or as side thing because we had the device to do it. And then that part grew and I grew interest in that part. And then I changed job for that position where I am now, where it's really 100% my job to identify particles. I have to ask, pearls for jewelry, really? Yes. How do you identify a pearl? Apart from, I think if you put it on your teeth, it's supposed to make a sound or the texture is different? What we used was X-ray tomography simply to check the structure inside the pearl. So like this, you see inside if there is a polymer bead or if there's a seed from something different or is it a natural pearl that comes from a sand cone. Oh my gosh, that's, that's super interesting. Since the main topic of our podcast today is particle identification, how do you define a particle? I would try to move away a bit from the word particle. Most of the time, what we identify, we should call it foreign matter because um, what we analyze can have different sizes. We had to analyze, for example, pieces of a hammer that has fallen in a reactor and went through the edge data. So you can imagine that we're not talking about a small cellulose fiber there. We're really talking about big pieces of a big hammer, simply to understand could it have um, made side reactions in the reactor. Particles can be um, very small proteinaceous aggregate in a drug product. It can be a cellulose fiber. 90% of the particles that are observed in products, in injectable products, mm -hmm. are probably cellulose fibers. It can be glass particles, metal particles. Basically, you always have to be open for anything to happen and keep your minds open and uh, let yourself surprised. So the bottom line is whatever that's not supposed to be in drug product, right? In drug product, in drug substance, in raw materials. You mentioned also that it could be a protein aggregate. In general, why is it important to track presence of these aggregates and of larger particles of foreign matter to follow your nomenclature? Clearly, you don't want to inject particles to a patient. You don't know what may happen. We need high quality in drugs. Also, if you have proteinaceous aggregates or if you have such precipitates that are forming in your product, it means that it may have not the configuration you want it to have. And so the bioavailability or the efficacy may be different. And so you're not treating your patient correctly. So this is really why we need to ensure that there is no aggregates, there is no precipitates for the patient's safety, and but also to ensure that the patient is receiving the dose that he's supposed to receive. Thank you. Now, what happens when you receive a sample? Uh, could you run us down through the typical process of particle identification? So first thing, when we receive a sample, you look at what you received. If what you're receiving is a very big particle that is swimming in a solution, for example, 
you're not going to try to, to filter that, you're going to try to fish it out with tweezers or something like this. If the particle is very small suspended in a drug product, you would filter through a special filter. Second thing that we do is we image the particle. We make microscopic or large images of the particle and we measure the particle in every dimensions so that we can estimate the volume, the size of the particle, and so on. So this is what I would call the characterization of the particle. The next step is what I would call the chemical identification of the particle, so finding what are the material of construction of the particle, if I may say so. And this we do from the less destructive to the most destructive techniques. What is the least destructive technique? So we will mainly start with FTIR spectroscopy, we measure what is the absorbance, we have large databases, and we compare the spectrum that we've obtained with our database, and this gives us some hits. Of course, here, experience of the operator is there also to say that first hit is a nonsense, the second hit makes more sense, and that's where all the expertise is playing a role. If with FTIR we have some results, we may step to another spectroscopical method, the Raman spectroscopy. If you didn't manage with Raman spectroscopy and FTIR, it's most probably that your material is inorganic. So we go to electron microscopy and elemental analysis there. And there we can define, is it iron, stainless steel, glass, um, I don't know, calcium carbonate or any other mineral compounds. So this makes a distinction between organic and inorganic matter when it comes from the chemical point of view, I assume. Yes. What happens if the sample is of biological origin, I'm thinking an eyelash or piece of skin or a nail or okay. something like that. Um, so basically, piece of skin compared to piece of nail or so on, they will have different FTIR spectra. So piece of nail is going to be keratin, for example. So this is something you can easily identify. Piece of skin is looking very much proteinaceous. Um, that's where the experience of the operator by looking at the microscopic images with uh, the FTIR results that are going to give you uh, an indication of what it is. And same eyelash, hair, and things like this. These are definitely no-goes for in a drug product. This is what you definitely don't want in the drug product. But again, those will have a very defined structure on the surface. You can also distinguish, is it an animal, is it a human hair, or something like this. You get already very much information just by microscopy of the hair. What we've discussed so far are particles that are visible to the human eye. What happens if a drug product or a drug substance contains a particle that is not visible by the human eye? There is some techniques to characterize what we call subvisible particle is the right term. And those techniques are mainly for counting those subvisible particles. There is limits in the pharmacopoeia that says that specify how many you're allowed to have in your drug product. And this will also depend on how you use your drug product. So if it's the drug product is intravenous, you will have larger amounts of subvisible particles allowed than if the product is injected in the eye. Ophthalmic products are definitely very, very strict. But how do you count subvisible particles in the first place? So here we mainly count them via optical techniques. They bring shadow in front of the detector and you count the number of shadows. And if you want to go further in characterization of those subvisible particles, we also have a technique that is called flow imaging. And this will take 
photos of every single sub-visible particle that are passing in front of a detector. You can imagine it's like a, a camera. And then we sort out all those images to count the particles, to analyze the shape of the particle. When you have the expertise, it gives an indication of what nature can be those particles. What are the implications of particle analysis for the pharmaceutical industry? Now I mean both visible and sub-visible, beyond ensuring quality. We have to be aware we are in a very regulated environment. And if we look over the last few years, around one third of the pharmaceutical products that have been recalled from the markets are due to particle. That's crazy. Yes. Okay. Oh my. So one third of the recalls are from, from particles. So definitely it is a big subject. It is a big interest of the, of the pharmaceutical companies to control particles too. They don't just produce and check at the end. They put a lot of efforts all along the development to understand where those particles can come from, how can we reduce the level of particles in the products and so on. There's daily tracking for each batch. I'd like to now pause and just mention that this particular topic, particle identification, is relevant basically to every single topic we have covered on this podcast so far. This stretches across CAR-T therapies, even exosomes, ADCs. Tablets. Tablets, yes. It's really everything. Capsules, I assume, as well, right? Capsules, of course. If we think of, for example, products like cell therapies, where you produce a drug especially for one patient, what we call the autologous products. So basically, product is made out of the cells of the patient. You manufacture the drug for the patient, you give the drug to the patient. If at the end, at the control, you observe it, there is a particle mm -hmm. in that product, meaning you have to reject that batch. It may be a death sentence for your patient. Oh, gosh. Generally speaking now, how common is it to perform particle identification in the pharma industry? Every single vial that are on the market anywhere in the world have been inspected for particles. By humans? Not always by humans. It can be machines, but machines that have proved to perform as good as humans. All right. Speaking about humans performing this type of testing, how are they trained to know what to look for? They have to pass several tests. They have to have an eye test, visual acuity of 20. They have to be non-color blind. And then you have to, to pass what we call a visual inspection qualification. So it is a series of samples with vials, if we're talking about vials, with vials without particles, with vials without other defects, what we call the cosmetic defects, and vials with particles. And out of that series of maybe 1,000 vials, there's around 10% of these that have a defect, and they have to be able to sort out the vials that present defects. If they fail, they may repass the test, they may retrain, and so on but they have to pass that test of detecting particle. We can consider that human can detect in a liquid vial around 150 to 200 micron particle sizes. And for fibers, of course, they're elongated, so they are more difficult to see. So we say around 500 micron is the lowest size. So half a millimeter is the lowest size that people can see. When we look at the general public, 
what's the proportion of people that can pass this test? And I'm, the reason I'm asking is because I remember when we worked together, I tried it out of curiosity and I failed miserably. And if you, and you know me well, I am, this is not easy for me to admit, <laughs> but I couldn't pass it, no. For passing that test, some people may train up to 40 hours just doing this training, 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 and training. And after this, they pass the test. And we really see drastic changes on performance of the people with the training. So there's still hope for me. Yeah, there's still hope for <laughs> okay, you. That's good to hear. <laughs> now, maybe a bit of a provocative question, but is it even possible to manufacture a drug without any particles present whatsoever? No. Okay, that's what I thought. I, I, I mean, we, we have we have to be to be honest. It is the goal, but it is not realistic at the level of capacity, human capacity, and technic capacity. The one who tells you I am able for sure to produce every single drug without particle is lying to you. <laughs> okay, we have to be really honest. Yeah. When you were describing the workflow, you also mentioned the experience of the operator. When you were explaining how you got into this field, you said that it was at the beginning a side area where you just grew into, where also the interest of the industry grew, right? Um, how do you find people that are experienced enough to be able to analyze these samples? I'm always looking for different profiles in my team. I have people in my team that are from material science, some people that have worked in pharma industry, some people that have worked in paint industry, some people that have worked in different environments. Because as I said, you never know what you're going to analyze and you have to be open-minded. And for that, you also need people that have knowledge in lots of side areas. So what I'm looking for is not people that are experts with the techniques that we have, because we have that expertise and we can train the people to do that. We want people who are curious, motivated. Also, you need to be very flexible, to be very reactive. Some people like and can work like this. Some people uh, prefer to have work that is a bit more planned in advance. I must admit that when I come to work, most of the time, one hour after I am at work, my day is looking completely different than what was expecting. Because I receive a call, hey, we've sent you something yesterday. It is urgent. Can you help us? I already have the who in my head. It sounds like CSI again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, on a lighter note, uh, could you share with us what is the wildest sample? that you've ever analyzed in your life? The wildest. Um, I have a long list of wildest. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's say the most unwanted or one of the most unwanted are probably insects and or insect parts. I have been confronted several times with insect parts and um, at the very beginning, when I joined Lanza, I've been faced with one of those insects parts, and this went very far. It really went, it's typical CSI uh, to relate to your question. It's really typical CSI because we basically made 
images our classical spectroscopy. So we saw that it was an insect leg. We made uh, FTIR spectroscopy. We saw it was keratin, so exoskelet and something. We took pictures of that. I sent those pictures to the historical museum of Basel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Then the people from the historical museum came back to me and said, hey, uh, this is a true bug. And then uh, we went down the road of investigation. Was that true bug already in the excipients or in the raw materials that we were using or did it came during production here in Switzerland? So we went to send that little leg of a true bug. We sent it for DNA analysis. Oh my gosh. And from CSI, right, yes. <laughs> and from DNA analysis, we could find out from which region of the world that true bug was and it came out it was from the raw material and like this we could trace really down from where was the source of that particle does it mean that the batch was uh, the batch was rejected was rejected okay yeah. i mean normally if you have something like insect parts there's no hopes for your back I find this field really fascinating, really interesting, and it has implications to everyone who has ever received any injection, basically, or a tablet or a capsule. So everyone in the world, in my opinion. I wonder where can this field of particle identification evolve to? There's lots of evolution. We all hear about artificial intelligence at the moment. So there is evolution, for example, in using artificial intelligence to detect particles. So with cameras that are performing a bit better and with artificial intelligence that will be able to detect those particles, but also uh, artificial intelligence in the subvisible particle world, for example, if you have those images of the subvisible particle to be able to automatize the classification of those particles, sorting out those particles look like proteinaceous aggregate, they look like silicone oil droplet, they look like free fatty acid particles or something like this. So here artificial intelligence is going to play a big role. Then there is for identification of visible particles, there is development in the spectroscopical techniques like FTIR, Raman, but also NMR or other techniques to really try to identify the particle without having to isolate them so directly in the vial. But this is still looking far in the future, but uh, these are all things that are in development and there is still lots of things coming. Coming from, from an academic lab, even thinking about just putting a sample into an MR without purification and getting the right result, this sounds again like CSI. I wonder whether we will get there in 10 years, in 20 years or earlier, but it sounds fantastic and great that I can hear your enthusiasm about it already now. Is there anything you want our listeners to know about particles? What I want to mention is, of course, particles are something unwanted, but we should not always see particles as something unwanted. There's lots of situations where particles are also something wanted. A large field is what we call the small molecule world. So basically uh, powders to manufacture tablets and so on. And there's, there's even department that we call particle design. And this is where you choose the crystal size of your API. You choose the particles of your excipients to have a homogeneous blend and so on. And 
These are also particles. They are particles that need a lot of engineering, a lot of interest, and that are very, very important. If you would like to learn more about this topic, you will have to go back and listen to the podcast episode with Matt Ferguson and Kim Shepard, where we talked about developing and formulating treatments uh, for inhalation. Well, with this, Pascal, I'd like to really thank you for joining us today. I think we learned a lot and it brought me back to the old times when I was still working in the lab with you. <laughs> I have to thank you for this opportunity. And also I look back at the times where we were together in the lab. It was really fun. No more 70s heavy metal, huh? In the lab. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Which you don't miss, I know. <laughs> All right, well, thanks. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to A View on Particle Identification with our guest, Pascal Chalut. I hope you enjoyed learning about the good, the bad, and the ugly of particles. I mean, talk about insect legs. We will be back next month with another deep dive into the pharma manufacturing world, and this time about using capsules for targeted therapy delivery. If you cannot wait, head over to lonza.com forward slash a dash view dash on to listen to our previous episodes, subscribe to never miss an episode, and access additional materials and interviewee info. Bye for now.